Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. Okay, so first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I love the questions, too. Good questions. Thank you. Well, one thing that I wanted to do here was was really get to the, the heart of the matter in terms of how these pieces were actually put together, because I've, I've read quite a lot about Trout Mask Replica, and it's it strikes me that very often what you actually read are descriptions of what reviewers think of the record, you know, in terms of what it sounds like to them and what their impression is of it. But that doesn't always help you a great deal in terms of understanding how the pieces are actually put together and, and what the process of, of learning the music was. So that's something that I, I think is actually quite poorly understood. And I have to say your book was extremely interesting to read because it actually it clarified quite a lot of these questions for me. And the other thing I wanted to do, just, just starting off, was to say that... Uh, I think the the scope of your activities is is amazing. I mean, obviously you're you're an extremely well known drummer, but you're also uh, a, a dancer and a writer and uh, an <laughs> I used to be a dancer. <laughs> yeah, well, and 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 a singer and um, and an arranger and a composer. And I mean, it's it's actually quite astounding the the career that you've had. Um, with that in mind, what are you doing these days? Well, the the pay isn't that good. That's the whole thing about it. Right. <laughs> Uh, what am I doing these days? I, I'm getting ready to do a farewell tour in uh, in November uh, because the, the Magic Band has no original members except me now, and I just feel like it's time you know it's time to put that to rest. I may do something else. I may perform, but if I'm going to perform with people who aren't Magic Band members, I think I I'd rather do it under another name, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm putting that together. That's not going to be any big deal. It's just going to be another tour, basically. But um, uh, I'm also going to play in Austin with a group that I've never worked with before. I was introduced online to them, and I talked to one of the guys on the phone. And the name of the group is Churchwood. And I'm just going to, I think what I'm going to do is just pick simple material rather than trying to get into too many complex things, you know. Uh-huh. Diddy Wah, Diddy Grow Fins, that kind of stuff. And just have a good time. But they're actually going to uh, bring in some backup singers and maybe a horn section. So I get to do a little ranging for that. So I'm, I'm hoping to make it a, a very accessible thing, you know, not so much about the weirdness of BFAR, but about, you know, the good good times and and party music stuff because he did do some of that yeah so yeah i'm just looking at it that way and i'm thinking you know if i do something more accessible like that maybe it'll uh open a doorway so i can tour in the south because i've never been able to tour in the states you mean as a solo artist or with the magic band with the magic band yeah i've never been able to get a tour in the u.s so it's it's a little strange because we're an American group, but we have to go to the UK primarily uh, to actually tour. So we have had pretty good uh, response in Europe. Um, I was really surprised because we, they they booked us in Berlin at an eleven hundred 
uh, seat place and uh, or 1100 capacity room and it was on a Sunday night and I'm thinking well we usually play to four to six hundred you know this isn't like you know uh, the Rolling Stones yeah <laughs> we yeah. we play to four to six hundred people in a venue usually I mean uh, much lower than that is is often actually but average four to six hundred but uh, on a Sunday night, I think we, we had eight or 900 people in Berlin. I was surprised that there was that big a following in Germany. And that does, I'm sure that that's probably laughable to somebody who uh, does, you know, more mainstream music. But for this group, that was, that was a good show. And I was, I was very encouraged by that. We also did well in, uh, in Switzerland and, uh, I'd love to play Amsterdam again. That's I'm hoping to get one last shot at playing the Paradiso in Amsterdam. So I'm working on that. I'm also, uh, you know, you mentioned this uh, Patreon. So I, I went on there and I, I see, okay, I've got to give people something in order to receive this funding. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to set up a series of drum clinics where I teach how I wrote the parts to Hair Pie, Steal Softly Through Sano, uh, the ones that I actually wrote parts to. Uh -huh. And uh, and then I'll go, go on from there. But a lot of the songs, because of the fact that I was the drummer in the band, but I was also the organizer and the guy who is transcribing all the music and playing it for the other guys, and replaying it for them when they forgot it the first time. Um, I didn't get a lot of time, really, on the drums to practice my parts. We'll talk about that later on. But that's what I'm up to right now is setting up a little video feed from a laptop so that I can do sort of a demo of what I'd like to do in okay. terms of, of that. And then if I can raise enough funds, I'll buy a nice camera, you know, high def so you can really tell how old i am <laughs> well i mean patreon is, is is actually an amazing thing and it's 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 extremely recent but it seems like it could be a, a viable way for artists to have a, a sort of regular income especially artists who are doing things that are a little bit off the beaten track and right. all of these things are, are just a few years old at this point, and I think they're going to have a, a profound change in the way art is made in the future, because when, when the Beefheart stuff was done, you guys were working with record labels that obviously were uh, not always extremely honest. And uh, <laughs> to put well, it mildly. You know, yeah, well, Buddha wasn't that honest, but actually Warner Brothers was great. Yeah. Um, uh, I think more in that term, it was Don who wasn't the honest one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But but go ahead, you were Well, it's it's a way basically of um of of allowing artists to create their work essentially on their own terms and then as long as they're skilled at getting other people interested in what they're doing, then there's a, a remarkable way forward, you know, so you can you can have an, just enough people who are willing to uh, send $10 or $20 a month or something and and uh, if you can get, you know, a few hundred people doing that, then you've got an income. So I think that's yeah. I, I'm going to try that because I would like to continue with the art, and I I, I would like. I, I'm kind of getting to the point where I don't like to tour anymore. I'm I, I guess I'm turning into grouchy old curmudgeon. I don't know. 
but uh, just the, the whole thing about going to the airport and being squeezed into Richard Branson's tiny little sardine seats, you know, just doesn't appeal to me anymore. Uh, although I really do enjoy meeting people and I enjoy the performing, but, uh, you know, everything leading up to the performing and everything afterwards is just so difficult to deal with. So, I, you know, I'd kind of like to do more recording and less touring. Well, as I was reading your book, the, the section that deals with the 1975 tour, which you've said was one of the high points of your career with Beefheart in terms of yeah. your, your relationship with him. But I was, I was astounded by just the, the insane schedule. I mean, reading it in, in detail, I can't understand physically how it's possible to get through something like that, just week after week after week of playing in a different city, at, you know, every night, basically. And um, it's, it's, uh, it, it must be extremely grueling. I mean, how do, you, how do you get through something like that? Well, at the time, I was in very good shape. I think, what was I? I was 27. I was in prime shape uh, because I'd been dancing and I the only problem that I had was smoking I, I wasn't much of a drinker ever I'd have a beer now and then but you know it just never appealed to me to to, to slur my words and look like a complete ass you know so uh, you know I couldn't figure out I couldn't quite get the uh, attraction right but I, you know, I think part of it was a lot of the stuff was taken care of for us on that tour. Most of the time, we had roadies that set up our stuff, so we didn't have to set up and tear down. Right. So we had a lot of time to rest, and uh, we had, I think, five days. We had spent four or five days in Lyon, France, in a hotel outside of town, which uh, that was the most boring thing I've ever <laughs> done in my life, you know. You're watching television and, and the Untouchables are on in French. Right. You know? <laughs> the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was an interesting. Uh, but, but, but for me, it was because I, I stayed in good shape. Yeah, yeah. The other guys would kind of, you know, they would fall out. I did get sick once in Glasgow, but the other guys kind of, you know, they'd be really tired, but they, they were drinking all the time. And that just, you know, it takes your energy away. Well... I had actually a few questions uh, dealing with um, with Throat Mask Replica, which I recently did a, an analysis video on uh, regarding Frownland. Right. So uh, I was wondering if I could just sort of ask you a few questions about that and, uh, and, sure, and yeah. get your point of view about some of these things. Because have at it. Okay, well, let's do it. So, <laughs> so the first question is sort of a grand tour style question. And one of the things uh, that really struck me reading your book, again, was uh, you seem to have stuck with Don for longer than any other musician that worked with him, right, from Safe as Milk up to uh, Dock the Radar Station, um, with some interruptions in between, obviously. But um, I was struck by the fact that clearly he was someone who was extraordinarily difficult to work with for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> Yeah. And yet there's this sort of fascination. There's a kind of pull that kept you going back. So some of the other guys, you know, got fed up, which is completely understandable and, and left. But you, you kept returning. And there's a kind of um, interesting phenomenon that you, you describe in the book where you would, you would go back and you would sort of regret it. But you would do it anyway. And uh, there, there's one point in the, in the book where you, uh, you say that uh, you, you decided to go back. I think it was maybe during... Uh, with my decals off, and you described it as being possibly the stupidest decision you ever made. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> which I was quite surprised to read, given given how remarkable that album is. Uh, you know, given given what a, a defining statement it is. How can you regret having participated in it? I mean, is that really how you feel in hindsight about it? Well, it, it was because of the difficulty of working with Don. Um, he had just gotten his picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. And before that, Don already had a tremendous ego. And after his picture was on the Rolling Stone, it inflated even more. So... When I first came back, he said, no, we, you know, none of that stuff that happened before is going to happen. And if you read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Right. All yeah. the talks and, you know, the violence and all that. And and then it just slowly worked its way back to that. I remember just as, I, you know, I had quit school, I was I was staying with Art Tripp because he had an extra room at his house. So I just stayed with him. And... Uh, the Don came over after some meeting. I think we had just signed contracts or something. And he said, uh, and he had a meeting with the whole band and Jan was sitting next to him. And he said, you realize it here that I'm doing you guys a big favor because it's me they're coming to see, not you guys. It's me that they want to see. I'm the one who makes this happen. And right at that point, I just thought, why did I do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, no way to have any kind of team spirit or effort. And I'd seen these guys, you know, just Mark and Bill, especially, were just so dedicated to Don. Mm -hmm. And yet, I remember one day Don said, uh, you know, Don called Mark and said, uh, my toilets stopped up and Mark came over to fix it for him and he had a you know he had a a bathroom plunger and don didn't like the way he was holding the bathroom plunger and took it grabbed it out of his hand and stuck it on his face and pushed him up against the wall oh my god that's you know that and it was there was such a lack of respect for these guys who i you, you listen to peon you know, uh, those guys worked on that and worked on it and worked on it. And they were like one one entity playing that piece. You know, you don't get that kind of dedication from musicians. You just don't. And for those guys and, and for their level of, of ability, uh, those guys really gave their all to everything, you know. So it, it, it was sad for me to see that kind of stuff happening. And I asked Don why he did that, and he says, I didn't like the way he was holding it. My God. And that, that's just one of, you know, hundreds of examples of that kind of behavior. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I regretted going back after that. But at the same time, when I first went back, I thought, well, you know, he's gotten recognition here. Even though I didn't get any recognition, I wasn't even mentioned in the article, the Rolling Stone article. Uh, well, one place they said, well, who's the guy you got playing on drums now? And he says, uh, Drumbo One. Uh. He says, well, wasn't there another Drumbo? And he said, yeah, but he was Drumbo Two. And he says, well, who comes after Drumbo One? And he said, Erasure. Uh. You know. 
But, uh, you know, actually, Don replaced me with a non-drummer. The guy didn't even know how to play. And just thought, uh, I mean, he thought so little of my playing that he thought that anybody could just do that stuff, I guess. Right. So, um, but I came back thinking, well, he's got his picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Maybe I can gain some recognition here and move on from there and do some other things. But it just didn't happen that way. But it was a repeating pattern that would that went on for basically the entire time you worked with him. So, so what do you attribute the the longevity of your working relationship with him to? Uh, the next time I worked with him was in '75, and uh, I I went into the idea, I went in with the idea of doing a couple of big shows that he was doing. He was doing Nebworth, and then he did a big show at the pretty high paying show at the Roxy. Yeah. And I needed money. I, I couldn't get a gig with bands. Bands thought it was horrible because I didn't play regular drums. I couldn't play two and four all night. You know, I'd go crazy and, and put in something different or try a different experiment. And years later, these guys came up to me and said, I didn't realize you're a famous drummer. Uh, I thought you were a horrible drummer, but you were just playing over my head. <laughs> 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 so it was, it, you know, I, I couldn't make any money up here doing that. And I had just, I'd had a job. I'd actually gotten a job delivering furniture for a company. And the guy that they paired me with couldn't get along with anybody. And the last guy he worked with, he got in a fist fight with. So this guy, you know, for about two weeks, he was really nice to me. And then he started in and one day he threw a dining room table at me. And I just said, you know, I walked up to the front and I said, when, I, when somebody starts throwing furniture at me, it's time for me to go. Right. <laughs> and it was right around that time that uh, Don uh, said, you know, or Herb Cohen called me and said, you know, uh, we've got this uh, thing at Nebworth and and then a couple of things at the Roxy and a Chicago TV show. And I said, sure, I'll do it, you know. So I, I, I was sleeping in my parents' garage. <laughs> That's how poor I was. And I remember uh, I, there was a little room in there, you know, a little room next to the, the actual garage. And I'm sleeping in there, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and Don was standing in my room staring at me. And I said, what the hell? <laughs> and he goes, you should do it, man. <laughs> and I said, I already told Herb I will do it. Now go home. <laughs> Showed him out. <laughs> and he went home. But, uh, you know, then I did a, you know, I left... Uh, because, because it, you know, after a while, it just got to be the same kind of thing. I, I left after Bat Chain Puller was done in 76. I came back for a short stint in 77 when he pissed off his drummer and the drummer quit just before a tour. And um, Gary J. And uh, I stayed just a little while in 77. And then I, I came back in 80. But that was a whole spiritual reason why I did that, and I'm not going to go into that. Right, you described that in the book, actually. Yeah, but that wasn't even really me. You know, it was just sort of something. And, you know, at the end of that, when I said goodbye, it was closure. 
I knew I had yeah. done everything I could possibly do. But yeah. there was a part of me that always felt sorry for Don. And I think he, I think he sort of portrayed that. He used that with people. He would, he was so helpless, you know. Oh, I really need help here. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I fell for that a lot. But, but part of it was is that I, could, I just saw that he had this incredible ability musically, and I enjoyed the music. So, you know, in order to do the music, you had to put up with the guy. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, you must have had a, a really intense identification with the music um, that, that goes just beyond what, what might normally happen in that kind of situation. I mean, it, it was as though... Uh, it was as though you were born to play it in a sense. I mean, your style seems to have have uh, worked absolutely perfectly with what he was trying to do, and you were amenable to experimenting as well, which not a lot of musicians are. So, yeah, that uh, that was here. That's the thing. I mean, I have never been able to play in another group. You know, <laughs> it's just it doesn't work. You know, I can't go in and play Freebird. <laughs> at a bar you know what am I going to do I mean I would have loved to have gotten with the right people but there never were the right people you did a you did an extremely um, um, extremely compelling cover version of Surfing USA that uh... <laughs> yeah uh, well uh, that wasn't really a band that was just some fun yeah you know, we were just having some fun in the studio. Yeah. Henry suggested that I make it, you know, more negative as we go along. But but uh, I wanted to do it straight because I thought it sounded great. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to do uh, with your agreement was uh, sure. just describe a little bit the way that uh, Trout Mask Replica came together. Because it's it's amazing how many times, you know, you can you can tell people... Uh, the way it was put together, you still keep hearing the same inaccuracies about that record. Um, and uh, a lot of people still seem to have the, the mistaken perception that it's it's a, it's actually chaotically put together, and it, it's not at all. I mean, it, it sounds as though no. it was the, the product of months and months of extremely hard work um, under yeah. tor torturous circumstances. So I, <laughs> I was wondering if you could walk us through a typical day at the, at the Trout Mask house in Woodland Hills. Was there such a thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can. I you know, there's usually you know we stayed up late. Usually, uh, if we weren't working on music, uh, Don had this thing about having his girlfriend read to us. Uh, so we'd all go in and she'd she'd read to us uh, after dinner. Yeah. And usually, uh, I mean, one one book was Diary of a Genius. Salvador Dali. Yeah. Yeah. And another one was The Naked Ape. I hated that book. Because, you know, they had all these physical, you know, like all this body language stuff, and Don started interpreting everybody's body language. And it was like, oh my God, as if we aren't enough in a goldfish bowl. Right. We got this going on. So so I Desmond Morris was the author of that. Um but the morning would usually start out, you know, we'd get up late. I mean, we'd probably go to bed at midnight to one in the morning, maybe get up nine, ten, somewhere around right in there. 
there was no there was no set schedule or alarm clock. We all slept in the living room except Don and his girlfriend. They had the bedroom, and uh, I slept in a mattress that was up against the wall, sort of you know sort of folded up against the wall. And that was my, I couldn't sleep on the floor. The other guy slept on the floor in sleeping bags. Hmm. And I couldn't do that. And, uh, but it, it, anyway, we'd get up and there was nothing to eat usually. Maybe, maybe a piece of toast or something. There was hardly any food in the house. And uh, I would generally, uh, during one period of time, I put my drums in a little laundry shed that was outside because. You know, the guitarists, they could practice any time they wanted to. You yeah. know, they can go in a, another room in the house or downstairs in the corner or whatever. But, you know, when you're playing drums, everybody around you knows it. Right, you know? right. So I'd go out in the laundry shed to at least give the guys some break from from uh, my drumming. And um, that's what how I developed the cardboard that went on the drums. I put cardboard on everything in order to... You know, so I could at least practice the movements, even though it really screwed with my rebound and my stick control. Because, yeah. you know, there's no rebound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a I had a weird, I developed a weird style of playing technique from that. Um, but anyway, usually we'd figure out, Don would be up 12 to 1 in the afternoon, somewhere around in there. And... Usually, you could assess the way the day was going to go by that first half an hour he was up. Hmm. You know, whatever mood he was in. Uh, sometimes I'd be sitting at the piano. To, I remember one day sitting at the piano teaching uh, Rockette, one of the bass lines. You know, I, I would play it and he'd play it. And he'd say, what, what note is that? And I'd play it. And he said, how did the rhythm go? And... Uh, I remember Don coming out and Mark's really trying to get, it was a tough part. It was a tough part to play. You know, he was finger picking the bass. This isn't, this isn't like, you know, playing a Rolling Stone song. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, one of those songs was equal to doing a Rolling Stones album. Right. You know, right. If right. you really want to get down to it, as far as the amount of time and, and uh, the, the complicated mess that it was. But anyway, I remember one day, Don came out and, you know, Mark is like squinting and he's trying to get this part. And he's trying to play it and Don's looking at him. He's looking at me and shaking his head like pathetic, you know, sort of. And and and, and Mark stops and he says, why don't, why don't you just fucking play it, man? Just play it, you know? And Mark's saying, well, I'm trying to. He says, I don't think so. I don't think so. What is your problem, man? And that would, and then it would go into all day us talking about to Mark about what his problem was, and you know, or or it could be all day working on music and maybe Don. A lot of times Don went out at night. He would just leave, and leave leave us there, and we'd work on music. And that's when we actually got the most done when he was out of the room. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of time wasted. Oh. We could have done that album in half the time, you know, really. I mean, at the amount of, we were putting in 12 hours a day on music, 10 to 12 hours a day, mm -hmm. average. I remember when I was learning the drum parts, 
at the last minute. I had some 14-hour days there. So how did you put those drum parts together? Were they, did you write them out at any point or they were, you, you had the music essentially memorized, you were referring to the charts? How did that work? Yeah, uh, the good thing was is that I was so familiar with the music that gave me an advantage in that respect because I knew how long each section was and so on. Uh, but yeah, I did. I, I wrote out, uh, I didn't write out drum parts to every, every piece because there just wasn't time. But I think the first one that I wrote out was for Hair Pie, and it took me almost a day to learn it. I thought, well, I better start writing them simpler than this. But uh, it was uh, it was a combination of three rhythms going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I, I found that each part, the more I wrote and the more I tried doing them, the easier it became to assimilate the, in in plain words the learning curve to learning became faster right so uh you know so i would say that one of the songs that's probably 100 percent mine except for one little thing that don took out is hair pie that's oh, yeah. why I, I like doing that particular piece well one of the things that that strikes me about the record that i think is incredibly innovative uh, but that isn't often commented upon is the fact that you have two guitar parts that are essentially equal like there's, there's no lead guitar rhythm guitar division on this album the, the two yeah the two are equivalent and in addition to that you have a bass guitar that in a lot of the songs doesn't actually uh, fill the, the role of grounding the harmony at all right so it's no. it's, it's playing basically a third independent part so right. so basically you have these three melodic instruments um all on the same plane uh, and all playing equally complex material all the time, which means that a typical song on Trout Mask has 10 times the amount of information that a, t- a typical rock song has easily. Oh yeah. So, but yeah. even, even compared to strictly personal or, or safe as milk, I mean, there's, there's an enormous leap from those albums to Trout Mask in terms of the way the pieces were actually put together. So even, even on strictly personal, the bass, I, I love the bass playing on that album. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry Hanley's an amazing bassist, but uh, uh, yeah. well, are you talking about strictly personal now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go. Yeah, that he's 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 essentially doing what you would expect a, a really good bass guitarist to do. The 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 bass is grounding the harmony on those on those right. pieces, right? So right. whereas on Trout Mask you have chords, you have really complex rhythmic figures being played on the bass. Um, mm-hmm. So so that. In addition to the the idea of having these two completely independent guitar parts, really gives the album uh, a wildly different feel, and I'm just curious as to how that arose. How did how did how did you guys make the leap from doing strictly personal, which is obviously an extremely experimental album, but nevertheless, right? You know, it, it has what you could call fairly straightforward uh, rock instrumentation. To yeah, tra- and to accessibility. Mask. And accessibility, right. To, to Trout right. Mask, where you have you know, multiple streams of music going on simultaneously, uh, and sometimes in unrelated uh, key signatures and, and, and time signatures and so on. So how did that transition take place exactly? Was there a, was there a transition period, or was it just abrupt? Um, Frank Zappo had a lot to do with that because we went over to see Frank. He invited the whole band over one day. And the 
the basis of it was just to socialize with us, say, hi, how are you? But he did have a little spiel. Yeah. He came down the stairs, shook everybody's hand like a businessman, and uh, was very cordial with us. Uh, I, I don't know, he gave us coffee or something. And, uh, and then he sat down next to his record player, and he said, uh, you know, people say you need to go to college to get uh, a musical education. But he said, all you really need is a record player. Hmm. And then he put on Procoherum, uh, A Whiter Shade of Pale. <laughs> and he loved that song. Hmm. And he loved the chord changes, the way it worked. you know. So he just played that for us. And I was very impressed by the fact that he would acknowledge the greatness of another band. Because Don would never do that. Don was always putting people down, unless it was another genre of music right. entirely. But Don was more like threatened by things, whereas Frank seemed to embrace other other bands, you know. Um, so anyway, as we were leaving, uh, Frank said, hey, look, i got to go to work now. And uh, Ian Underwood showed up. I always want to say Anderson. Ian Underwood showed up, and uh, we all met him, and he said, okay, Frank said, I got to get to work, so you guys need to go. As we were walking out, Frank had this music sitting up on the piano, and uh, he said, okay, can you play this, you know, and Ian played it, played a little bit of it, and he says, well, this is wrong right here, you know, so this is unplayable, or this doesn't make sense harmonically, or whatever, so they were talking stuff out. And I, I noticed Don had this intense look on his face, you know. He was watching really closely, sort of, you know, in the corner. So, and I could see the wheels working, you know, like he was thinking about something. Well, he went right out and got a piano. And that was the big change. The uh -huh. abrupt change was the piano. Okay. It, it was like in 2001 where the ape touches the big... <laughs> you know. Oh! oh. <laughs> ah. so, so, when he got the piano, um, Don had this idea that he was just going to record on tape endlessly. Right. And I put, a t I, I put a stop to that because I was the guy that always wound up trying to find some empty tape because he would never buy new tape. So so I just said, uh, I took the fuse out and I said, it's broken, it won't work. I don't know what's the matter with it. <laughs> and he was playing away and I, I had been writing drum rhythms out and I just picked up my, my uh, little pad and manuscript paper and penciled out what he was playing. Now, I didn't even know that there was a bass clef. So both the upper and the lower were both treble clef. And I had to go every you know, I had to go every good boy does fine to figure out all cows eat grass, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd only done rhythms. Um, but I, I wrote it out something and uh, and I just set it down on the piano casually. I wasn't thinking about anything. Wasn't you know, I just thought, I wonder if I can do that. And I did it. So he came down later with the paper. He had these big eyes. You know, he's going, can you play this? <laughs> and uh, I said, I think so. And he said, try, you know. <laughs> so I went back and uh, 
sat at the piano for a minute and I messed around and then I played played the thing because basically all this stuff was one position. He put his hands in one position and he'd do a rhythm. He didn't move around a lot at that point. So uh, he's and he's like this, you know, he says, that's how we're going to do this album. We already knew it was going to be a double album and I'm thinking, man, that's going to be a lot of work. Well, that was going to be my next question was what... What was the point at which it was clear that this would be a double album? I mean, was it... From the beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. Did the, did the release of Freak Out have something to do with that, do you think? Freak Out being a double album. I, I wouldn't know. I, I wasn't privy to those conversations, those private conversations. I just remember the first time that Don called Frank. And Frank had just come back from his long gig at the Garrick Theatre. And we had just been screwed over with that um, strictly personal. Um, it, it was a bad mix. Don was really unhappy with it. And uh, he says, I'm going to call Frank. And the first thing he did was he brought home, we're only in it for the money. Uh-huh. And we listened to it. And I, I was lying on the floor laughing so hard. I was just laughing all the way through it, you know. Uh, but then... then uh, that night, he said, John, come with me. So I got in the car. We hopped in the car and went down, and he was on the phone. I'm standing outside watching it, and I'm looking at his body language and the expression on his face. So I'm saying, man, these guys, you know, are catching up on old times. They're having a great time with this conversation. And he, and he got off the phone, and he came out, and he says, we're going to do an album with Frank, man. Hmm. He's going to give me creative freedom, which was a big deal with Don. You right. know, he was always using that term, creative freedom. And I, I said, great, you know. So that's so that's kind of the way it all, all got started. But it was it was going to be a double album right from the beginning. Okay. So you must have had an inkling of what you were in for then, at least on that level. Not really. <laughs> this was before I got the piano, so. Right. Uh, most of what, what happened with Don is he'd sit around with the guys and whistle parts to them, and they'd, Alex, Alex and Jeff would, and, and Jerry would mostly be um, sitting through one little amp, sitting on the floor in the living room playing quietly, and I'd be keeping time tapping on a snare drum that I had stuffed with rags so it wouldn't <laughs> disturb the neighbors. That's how we worked a lot. I had another question relating to that, which was, so you've described the, the dimensions of the project, the fact that it was clear from the outset that it would be a, a double album and that there would be this radical new way of putting the material together. One thing that's extremely hard for me to grasp, and I've talked with a number of composers about this too, uh, and we're, we're all actually quite, uh, we're seeking clarification about this point, which is that given the extraordinary complexity of the music, given the incredible ambition of this project, I mean, you guys didn't have formal music training. Correct me if I'm wrong, but so how how did you remember all of this material? I mean, it's it's an it's an 80 minute long record of uh, you know of incredible density. So <laughs> how did how did you do that? <laughs> it just goes to show what you can do if you're motivated enough. You know, um, we do, we all uh, let's see. Mark didn't have training uh, I had a couple of years of marching band you know which is in boom 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 you know right 
Bill had taken a little bit of uh, uh, theory, so he was a little, he was actually a little more advanced um, in that respect. And Bill had an interesting way, everybody has a different way of learning parts. Like for instance, uh, uh, Bill, he'd say, he, he wanted everything vertically. He'd say, what's the first note or chord? So I'd play him that and go, dink, okay, what's the next one? And I'd play the next if it was a chord or whatever. And 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 he'd say, okay, now just tap out the rhythm for me. So I'd go, or something, you know. That was a pretty standard rhythm, by the way. Don liked that, boom, boom. You know, he was always using that, boom, boom, followed by whatever. Right. Or, ba, ba, ba. He loved that one, too. But anyway, that's the way Bill learned. And, uh, you know, at first I was just scratching all this stuff down. It didn't have titles. You know, what are you going to call this thing, you know? So I'd write something that reminded me of the day so that I go, okay, this happened on the day that, you know, we had spaghetti or something. Right. No, we never had spaghetti, though. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is the day we got starved even right. more. <laughs> Burn soybean. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I'd write something down and Donna get me and say, what the hell is that? You know, and I'd say, that's the only way I can remember because you're not giving me any titles here. I've got to have some way to remember this stuff. So, but at that stage, did he have a sense of what words were going to go with what music? He did. Um, I had no idea. I uh, I knew kind of that that uh, on Steel Softly Through Snow, because he had written he had written the lyrics ahead of time, and and he used to have Jeff Cotton, you know, write everything in long, and he would print on like typing paper mm-hmm. whatever Don would dictate to him. And right. I mean, they'd spend sometimes they'd be up all night doing that. And I think, well, he's not going to be any good today, so I guess I'll work with Mark and Bill. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, yeah, reams of stuff, you know. But yeah, I think on on Steel Softly, it, it, you know, he was in the other room doing lyrics or or thinking about what he wanted to do. You know, you're saying, how did we memorize all that stuff? I don't know. You know, I I think, you know, it just. When you're so absorbed in it and you're not going anywhere and you don't have a sex life or a social life, you're not eating, you got to do something with your time. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. that was it. You know, yeah. that was what we did. It, it got to the point, Samuel, to where I remember a lot of times I used to sit at my drums because it was sort of like my desk. You know, I would put uh, notebooks on my floor tom and i put music that i was retranscribing on the suspended tom and then i'd sit on the snare and write because you couldn't do it at the piano and the dining room table didn't have any chairs so right so that's where i would work and i remember the guys standing in the room with their with their backs to me standing in opposite corners of the room working on different songs you know, while I was doing that, huh. writing at retranscribing stuff, you know, to organize it better. And I stopped Jeff one day and said, you're playing the wrong note. <laughs> <laughs> That's how nuts we were. That's unbelievable. And he said, no, I said, what are you playing? It's this. And so I got the music out and took it over and, and played it for him. And it was it was uh, half step off. 
one of the notes was half step off. And he looked at me like, how did you know that? <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Because I'm crazy like you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, it was, a, you know, I, I don't think too many musicians have ever had an experience like that. No, it really strikes me reading about it that the, the process really is absolutely unique. And one of the reasons I think there, there's never there's never going to be another Trout Mask replica or anything closely resembling it just because no. you're never going to get, you know, you're never going to get five guys willing to live in a house together for a year under those kinds of circumstances learning that kind of music. I mean, people don't work that way typically. I mean, it's... It, it's a yeah I was kind of making a joke to Eric clerks the president guitarist in the magic band who was a highly schooled wonderful guy and great musician I, I was talking to him on the phone and I said well I said you know I'm gonna do a farewell tour at the magic band and we were discussing it and I said uh, I said you know I may put my own group together from locals right you know around here you know maybe not schooled guys but just guys that that want to really play some hard stuff. And I was thinking that I could, you know, rent a house and get them all in there. And, and I kept going on. I was describing the trap as uh, you know, situation to him uh, just to see how long it would take him to catch on. I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly he started laughing. You know. But uh, I have thought that I would like to find some younger players, you know, and I, I, I don't know. People say I'm hard to get along with. I don't know. I can't tell. I try to be nice to people, but if it, you know if they aren't playing something right, or I don't think they're living up to their end of the bargain, I I will confront them. Right. You know. Right. Right. And uh, not in an unkind way or yelling. And I usually will do it privately. But uh, I would like. I, I I really believe that you could get people to do that kind of stuff with kindness rather than with terror, you know? Yeah. It, it strikes me that it's, it's so far outside of the realm of what normally goes on in a, in a, a rock or a pop setting. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> basically it's going into, it's going into the territory of avant-garde composition and that's something that, oh, yeah. you know, for sure. And it's not something that, that a lot of people, uh, you know, who are, who are playing blues based music are, are going to be able to deal with. So, Right. So obviously, it took a, you know an, an unusual uh, working situation in order to make that happen. But you can certainly understand why a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't agree to work that way. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So okay. So 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 Don would write the words first, and then presumably he would have them in mind when he was writing a, a particular piece. I I really don't know. I can't I can't say for sure because he did a lot. You know, he would do stuff. Yeah, sometimes he did. But I can't say that he did that every time. That He didn't have like a standard process that he used like that. Okay. Except that he would sit out at the piano. And usually it would take anywhere from two to four hours for him to, to go through all the parts that he wanted in a particular piece. Well, I thought it was eight and a half hours <laughs> for the whole record. <laughs> no, he... He, he he mistook that for a Fellini movie. <laughs> now, 
No, but there are there are so I think there are pieces on Trout Mask where the the vocal part is fairly melodic, and you can see how it relates to the instrumental parts, like Ella Garou. Yeah, for example. Yeah. Okay. And there's other pieces where it's almost half sung, half spoken, right? So it's it's not right. There, there's not that necessarily that tight uh, connection between what the voice is doing and what the instruments are doing. But th- then there's a piece like uh, Hobo Chang Ba where oh. where there's elements on that. That okay, so he's doing a kind of very un PC kind of vocalization on that piece, right? And and you have these 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 uh, open sort of parallel fifths on the guitar that towards the end of the piece, dum bum bum da 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 da, you know, that seem to relate right, yeah. to that kind of pentatonic idea. So sure, yeah. So I mean that 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 I can see as relating to the to the lyrical idea, but um, but in in other pieces it's not always particularly obvious. You know, Bill's Corpse, for example, it's you know, um, you also have a part of the poem that that I believe it's on that one where the, the text goes beyond the end of the music. And he's actually saying a few words at the end that that uh, after the instruments have actually stopped playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, shit, I'm not I don't know how I'm going to get that in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never rehearsed with a band. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, now she knows she's a floozy, or now I know she's a floozy, or something like that. Right, right, yeah. So, right, so he didn't always have a clear idea, necessarily, of how the words and the music were going to go together. Right. Yeah. So I had no idea how it was going to go together. And uh he used to say, you think you got a hard job, man? I got to sing to that shit. That's what he said to me one night. <laughs> well, that puts things into perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the evolution of your drum style, uh, because the the drumming on Trout Mask Replica is is really unlike anything. And one of the things that that really strikes me about it is is the rhythmic independence of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's so you're often doing multiple rhythms simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And then one thing that that always struck me, especially when I first heard the record, was was how varied your use of the hi-hat is, right? That you use a, an extraordinary range of different hi-hat techniques on the, on the album and not all that much in the way of conventional cymbal playing. So, um, first of all, does that perception ring true for you? And Sure, yeah. yeah. And how did that come about? Well, uh, when I first joined the band way back when, the first practice I went to, uh, Alex Snuffer was in the band. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but for a while he was the drummer and they had a different guy playing guitar. So Alex had developed certain ideas about the drums and especially Delta Blues kind of stuff. And I think he picked that up from, uh, oh, the Rising Suns drummer. I can't think of his name. Jesse Ed Davis. I'm, I'm bad with names, but I think it was Jesse Ed Davis. He picked up a few Delta rhythms, and one of them was, okay, and so Alex taught me that rhythm, and I thought, well, that's an interesting use of the hi hat opening and closing a different way, and and uh, so that was sort of the beginning of the idea that got me thinking about the hi hat in a you know as more of an expressive part of the kit than I had thought about it before. Because with me, it was mostly, you know, for that. So that got me started. 
And then when I started working, you know, I would work on some of their old stuff that I thought they were going to do again when I was alone. Like, for instance, there was a song called Obi Man. And Alex had played drums on it, and I never cared for the drum part that he did, although his timing was perfect. But it was like he was playing the same thing with both hands. You know, and I thought that would be better if it was like you know that kind of a feel mm-hmm. so that got me thinking about it and i thought well i could put a little you know so that's that's where he sort of got the idea of it and then when we were living in the house just before the trout mask house we lived in a house just down the street from where we did that it was a little cottage and uh I couldn't really set up my drums. Don was paranoid about the police showing up. He'd been arrested, and he was he was scared to death of the police, hmm. you know. Um, and and so all I could do was sit on the floor with a snare drum with rags in it and and beat on that and kind of keep my hands in shape a little bit. I couldn't I couldn't set up a kit, you know, and practice independence. But I do that, and I'd also pound on my my knees. You know, and 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 use my feet, sort of air drumming, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing, just to keep my uh, just to keep my my uh, limbs coordinated a little bit. But I couldn't really play the set. And then while I was doing that, I was writing out these patterns. I told you I'd been writing out drum patterns. Right. And I would just sit down and write out random patterns like da 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 you know that kind of thing. Just on and on, and then I'd try reading them, try reading them back. And I was never a good sight reader. I'm dyslexic or something. Um, but because of that, I start, one day I just saw this vision of myself playing in a sort of ambidextrous, polyrhythmic style. I just saw myself doing it in my head. Yeah. And I, I don't know how to explain how you can have a vision like that, except to say that I saw myself doing it in my head. <laughs> and I did. I mean, I, I it was like I was outside my body watching me play like that. Right. And I thought, wow, that would be interesting to do. Well, if And the, so that's how I started writing. So if, if I can just briefly talk about my own experience because I'm, I'm a composer sure. and I, I work with performers on a regular basis and one thing I've noticed is occasionally I'll run into a performer that has a, a way of playing that's that's so unique um, and and they just have physical abilities that other people don't have mm-hmm. um, and you know I, I think of these people as almost like physical mutants like they just have some kind of motor control that's just not it's, it's beyond what normal people people can do Right. And I think that there's a there's a physiological aspect to it. I mean, if you're intrinsically drawn to these kinds of complex patterns um, and, and this kind of limb independence that you also talk about, then mm-hmm. it, it's something that is located in the in the body somehow. Right. And it, it must be a kind of an innate thing that appeals to you or that that you you have the capacity to do, because not everybody can can play that way, obviously. You're saying that my physio- physiology is different and I was drawn to it because of that? You you must have had some kind of motor ability or sensitivity or 
uh, I don't know. There's there's a, there's a level of rhythmic sophistication that's that's way beyond what you normally get. So, I think it's uh, because my brain didn't get oxygen for the first five minutes after I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I always was drawn to weird. I was always drawn to things that were unexplained, that couldn't be explained. And I always, you know, whenever somebody said that's impossible, I wanted to prove them wrong. Right, right. Yeah, that was that was part of my thing. I I really felt like people could do things that they didn't believe they believe they could do. Yeah. Now I didn't want to put that in the physical realm. Yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm talking like the physical realm in terms of like athlete uh, athletics. You know, I I went into gymnastics for a while and landed in my head while I was trying to do a backflip. And I thought, that's it. I'm right. not going to get paralyzed trying to show off for girls. You know? <laughs> uh, so I thought that's when I really switched over into music almost immediately. Yeah. I thought that this is the thing where I can do something that that uh, I enjoy and uh, I don't have to risk life and limb to do it. Right, right. You know? Because I've noticed that people who have this kind of capacity, um, they have to do it, right? Otherwise, it, it it eats at you. I don't know if that's what your experience is like, but it, it's it's as though, <laughs> you know, you you have this extraordinary capacity, obviously, and you and you need to exercise it. You need to you need to bring it out because and and that involves setting challenges for yourself and and always sort of pushing the boundaries of what you're able to do. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, I, I just did that with the you know there's a there's one particular sax solo that John Coltrane did on a song called Afro Blue. Uh -huh. And I I have listened to that probably 10,000 times. Huh. I've just listened to it over and over because every, every line in that, almost every line is a perfect composition if you listen to it. It's just like from beginning to end, it just works. Yeah. And I've heard him sometimes when I went, oh, that's crap. But this particular one really got to me. So I actually transcribed it out, and I thought, I'm going to learn how to play this. And uh, the key that it was in was really difficult for me on sax, you know, because I play a little soprano now and then. Yeah. So yeah, I, I put it away and thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to, you know, bother learning that. What's the use? I'm never going to play it anyway. Uh, and then uh, I had the band learn Ant-Man B. And rather than do the kind of noise sax kind of thing that Don did on Ant-Man B, I thought, I wonder if I could superimpose that Coltrane solo over the top of this, because it's in 3-4 time, but Ant-Man B is in 4-4. Four, four. Hmm. And I thought, I wonder if I could superimpose that and change the key if it would work and uh when i first started it was like you know i spent two days trying to get one measure right uh, one phrase right you know right and then it got better and better and finally i was able to play it from beginning to end i never have done so successfully on stage i've always gotten lost somewhere but just the i was driven yeah you know yeah and and it was uh it was quite the learning curve for me, but but you know it was the same kind of thing as the drip, uh, that I was driven to do on the drums after I had that vision. 
you know, something that pulls you towards it. Right. If you have something pulling you, it's better than if you're trying to drive yourself. Yeah. If you have something pulling you, you don't even think about the effort because you're going towards something. Right. And that's that's what always motivated me with anything. Right. So you had a vision of what it was that you wanted to accomplish, right. and then yeah, yeah, and it, and it pulled you forward. Yeah. So you mentioned Ant Man B now. One thing that that you <laughs> that you describe a few times in the book, and it comes up also yeah. on on your on your solo record, also solo drumbo, is this. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but PK. How do you say it? Picaro P. Picaro P. So, t- can you describe that rhythm? Maybe describe it vocally and and explain what it is about that because it it comes up a fair bit. Um. Uh. It's a funny story behind that because, I, you know, I have my drum set in the living room, of course, and I was outside and Don was playing my drums, which is probably why I was outside <laughs> now that I think about it. He was playing my drums and all of a sudden I hear him going, John, John, <laughs> and I came in, he goes, write this down, man. He was sitting on the drums in his pajamas. And he had this black robe with uh, red piping. It was sort of oriental looking that he that his mother had given him. And he had that on. And he's sitting at the... He used to wear that sometimes for days, you know. Um, anyway, he said, can you get this? Can you get this, man? And it was, uh, it was a fairly simple rhythm to play, you know. But... Uh, uh, you know, I, I said, sure. Write it down, man. So I got I got the book, and 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 I said, "What do you call it?" Picaro P. I didn't ask him why, so I put Picaro P. And I wrote wrote the rhythm down, and, and it was, you know, I'd been transcribing his stuff for so long that I was so used to writing his rhythms mm-hmm. that I, I jotted it down like you know I had it done in thirty seconds easily. You know? Right. Uh, it's a little harder with drums because you got four things instead of just hands. You know, you got four appendages there. So I want right. to make sure it was right. But I got it in about 30 seconds. But I was sort of, <laughs> all the crap that he put everybody through, you know. I He kept saying, do you have it yet? I'm standing there pretending like I'm still writing. I'm going, no, you got to keep playing it. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can play this, man. <laughs> So you got your so I think I kept him playing it nearly five minutes before I finally, you know, thought, oh, I'm being really sadistic here. Right. But it was that was kind of one of those impish moments that you never, you know, I never told him that story. <laughs> right. That's probably a good thing. But the, the, the beat itself is da, 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 da. You know, that's the that's all the things in it. But it's done with the hands and the feet. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, I don't know if I could do it on the drum set easier or, or what. The, my room's a mess, so I don't even know if I can sit this anywhere. Okay, so it was like... Isn't that catchy? That's that's a wonderful rhythm. Yeah. And Yeah, and it's sort of a it's kind of a shuffle. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. It's not a straight time thing. Yeah. Party Trip used to play like. Real straight. Huh. And I said, no, man, you got to swing it. Right, right. So you're playing. I'm not putting Artie down because Artie uh, taught me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just a lot of technique stuff because he was he was a schooled player, a great player, you know. Well, on on on, on Doctor Dark, where you're both playing simultaneously, there's a. It's very clear that you have very different styles. It's very it's very easy to tell who's playing what. On that. Oh on yeah. That, on that on that particular piece, but so just on that on that excerpt you just played on on the cymbals, you're playing on the bells, right? Of, of the cymbals. cymbals? Yeah. 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 Both yeah, bells. Okay. And that's where it gets Picaro P. Picaro P. Picaro P. Picaro P. In fact, he wrote a song called Picaro Pete, which was, I think it was an outtake on The Spotlight Kid. Uh huh. He did a lot of material back there and then he'd never finish. I mean, there's dozens of unfinished things on that album. Yeah. So, did but did did he understand the complexity of what he was writing? Did he know what a polyrhythm was? Did he understand about having different overlapping no. time signatures and things like this? No, <laughs> he no. didn't have a clue. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I wondered, you know, when I when I'd write something down that he'd play, I wondered if he knew that it was in a different time signature, you know, but he didn't know what a time signature was. No, huh. he didn't know where middle C on the piano was. <laughs> <laughs> everything came from here and he you know or he would search sometimes he'd just search but sometimes he had a specific thing in his head he did have different ways of being motivated sometimes yeah. he was ambling around you know for a half an hour before he'd actually go oh get this you know and he'd play something and they were usually one and two bar phrases you know because basically because he really couldn't play much of anything past that and repeat it and i needed it more than once and i got to where i'd sit on the end of the piano next to him and i play it a couple octaves up and sometimes he'd be struggling to find something and i'd see what fingers uh, finger position he would be using and i'd say wait is this it and i'd play and he'd go that's it okay so we were talking about the the different overlapping time signatures and you were saying that that don really had no idea uh, about about he had no notion of that at all. No, because I the reason I knew that is because sometimes they say, okay, now when he does that, you do this, and I said that's going to be hard to do unless he counts it. Right. He say, man, you don't need to count that. Just do it. You know. <laughs> and I said, no, because he's playing in a different time signature. He's right. playing, you know. So he's not going to be able to listen to what the other guy is doing and do what he's doing. Right. You know, he can't. He can't do that. It's impossible. It's right. not impossible if he counts it though. So you, I'm. You know, I'd have the one guy play, and I'd say you point to him when you want him to come in, okay? And and so, you know, maybe Jeff would be playing a riff, you know, and and uh, he'd go there. So I'd count the number of measures, and then I'd figure out Bill's part. You know, and how far it went, I'd say, okay, try doing that three and a half measures and then coming in or whatever. And and it, it usually worked. And, and, you know, the guys would kind of look at me like, how'd you do that? You know, <laughs> and it was just, 
basically just common denominators, you know. Yeah. If you got a guy playing in three and you got a guy playing in four every 12 beats, they hit, I used to call it a touch point. Right. They, they're starting the measure together again. Right, right, you know? right. So, so, you know, that's that, that's how I built the whole album. I just used the same system because I, I, I didn't want to get any more complicated than it already was. Yeah. I, I mean, I find this really interesting just technically, just understanding how, how this process worked because some some of the pieces you can understand that there's a, there is a common pulse between the different parts. And you can relate things to that, but on right. some of the, on some of them, it really sounds like that it's two different tempi. Like, there's no common pulse at all between the the different parts. Like on Frownland, like the beginning of uh, 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 I'm sorry, you were saying Frownland. Yeah, but well, maybe you had something else in mind. Well, you know, I was thinking um, hair pie at the very beginning. You know, you got one guitar playing da 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 da. And the other guy is going da 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 da. Well, he's playing da 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 sort of loosely over the top of this. So you've got three over four, you know. Right. Da 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 da. Whatever that is. So it was sort of an instinctual thing, and you know, mostly I let the guys figure that out on their own so they'd, they'd have their own way of doing it because the guys had to come in after that together on that you know so so they they had to they had to work that out on their own but but uh, you know I just told Bill I said it's a part that floats over the other part uh-huh you know and he got it from that and figured out what we were talking about you know? okay okay it, it, uh, yeah, there's a, like the other one, uh, Hobo Changba is one, you know. I'm trying to think of the way that starts out. It starts with a little guitar solo, which is extremely, which is impossible to sing. <laughs> and then there's a... Do it, do it, do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a part in there where everybody stops and goes, ba-da, bubble, ba-ba, bubble, 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 da Whole different time signature, you know, whole different tempo. Yeah. That that song just, you know, that kills me. I'd love to do that one live because well, it's just such a great piece. So so that's my other question. So, okay, so I can understand how you'd have these different um, these different time signatures overlapping and, and even, you know, different pulses going on at the same time. But when the band would suddenly leap into a new tempo altogether and somehow find a new pulse, that blows my mind because... I usually work with conductors. I, I write a lot of chamber music and, and orchestral music and things like this, and I, I like to do a lot of complex rhythmic stuff. But obviously, with a conductor, you know, you can manage because the, they can always show you what, <laughs> what the upbeat is before before you have the downbeat. You can you can sort of have some preparation before you get yeah. into the new tempo, and and he can sort of lead everybody. But if you don't yeah. have a conductor and it's and it's five guys who don't have anything to, you know, I, I mean, I suppose you have eye contact and things like that, but. How do you find the new tempo, especially when there's no common pulse between tempo one and tempo two? It's just playing together a lot. You know, we would we would play through each, uh, you know, we would play up to that point, and then we would start the new section. You know, we'd stop for a minute and start the new section, and we'd memorize the tempo till it felt good. And we'd just do that over and over, and then we'd say, let's try it together now. That's how it happened. And those guys, I mean, you know, Bill and Mark and Jeff, 
they were constantly practicing together, mm-hmm. you know. And Mark, I mean, they they both had sort of acoustic. I think they were both hollow body guitars, so they could kind of hear themselves. Uh-huh. And Mark would would stick his uh, bass up against you know the neck of the bass up against the wall, and it would resonate enough to where he could hear it. Huh. Amazing. <laughs> and they would stand in a circle with each other. I mean, those guys were such a team. It was amazing. It yeah. was amazing to watch those guys. Yeah, yeah. No, because you don't normally, again, get that, that level of intensity and the number of hours they must have put in working together is uh, is really, really unusual. So, and you can hear it on the record. There's an incredible symbiosis. There's an incredible synthesis of yeah. everyone playing together. I mean, that's one of the things that makes the album so extraordinary, I think. Yeah. So... So how did you how did you feel about the mix when you finally heard it? Because uh, I'm I'm not clear on whether the band was involved with that at all. If Zappa just went and did it all by himself, or we we weren't really involved with it. I, I found mixing sessions to be boring. Uh-huh. I I couldn't stand mixing sessions. the 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 main thing I was disappointed with when I heard it was that it seemed like uh, the band was just buried with vocal, with horn. You know, anything Don was really loud. Yeah. So, and I thought, man, there's a lot of stuff going under there that people are never going to get to really hear. Yeah. Which is why when I when I formed the Magic Band, we did some of those things instrumentally. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Steel Softly and Hair Pie and right. um, My Human Gets Me Blues. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a it's a revelation actually to hear the the, the I've got the. Uh, the live disc that's from I, I believe it was from 2004 uh 21st century mirror man and that's that's a that's a revelation to listen to um because you can you can really hear everything and of course also the the grow fin set uh, the, the original house sessions of uh, trotman's replica are extremely interesting also do you have uh do you have the uh let me get it here do you have this one no i don't have that one that's probably the best example this is the magic band plays the music of captain b fart I don't know where we came up with that title, but huh. uh, anyway, no, the record company wanted to be that title so that they could, you know, it had the name Captain Beefheart in there. Right. Because it sells more. Yeah. More right. hits on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, this, this is a very, very good CD. Okay. Uh, I, I brag, I'll brag and say I mixed it myself. But the thing is, I know this music as well as anybody, probably. And I think that these mixes are probably the most accurate, well-balanced, where you can actually hear everything most of the time. So when when you do these live recreations of the pieces, do you have charts you're working from? Uh, how, how does that work, exactly? Well, the, the original guys didn't read. I mean, I'm talking Denny, Gary, Mark. A right. lot of them read. So basically what I did... For the tough pieces like Human Gets Me Blues, um, Hair Pie, and Steal Softly Through Snow. Those were the three that I picked because those are my favorite ones. And yeah. I thought they it, they were the easiest to hear the parts on, too. And I thought that, that the band could play those because there's not a lot of weird tempo changes and stuff. Plus, I love the drum parts. Right. <laughs> so there was a bias there, too. Right, of course. Uh, but yeah. anyway, I made what I did was I made MIDI uh, sequences. Uh-huh. 
uh-huh. and then I sent them each their part separately, and then I sent them the other parts without their parts, so they could. Actually, there were three. There was there was a full one with everything. Then there was one of just their separated track. Then there was one of the other parts without their part, so they could practice along with that. Yeah. So that helped. Um, some, you know, some of it was inaccurate, you know, in the beginning. But as long, <clears throat> I felt like as long as it had a flow to it, and and carried the general impression. It's sort of like an impressionistic painting. If, yeah. you, can, if you can tell that it's a building, you've done your job. And right. that's that's kind of the way I had to go about that because I didn't want to get out in all the nitpicky little particular notes. I mean, there's parts on there that were never played correctly, but this, this album seems to have the closest to that. Yeah, because some of the parts, as I discovered when I attempted to transcribe Frownland, some of them are actually quite hard to hear. Yeah. Um, so you, you did you did actually write everything out at the time. So I was curious, what happened to the transcriptions? Are, are there copies of those anywhere? Uh, I did write out everything at the time of the Magic Band reunion. No, I mean in in, uh, in, in 69. Oh, in 69. Yeah, all those, all those went with Don. So he kept everything that you wrote out. Right. And there were no copies? No. Huh. Uh, the originals were done with uh, with pencil, you know, just a manuscript book. And after a while, when people were coming back and saying, hey, John, I forgot the third part to hair pie, you know, I was going, oh, where in the hell is that, you know? Yeah. Because they, they were sort of scattered because I rearranged the parts. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't give them to them in the same... You know, I'd say, wait a minute, this works better with that. So I rearrange stuff, and you yeah. know, it's sort of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You know, yeah. Don, Don dumped the thing on the table, and then you had to put together to make a picture. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So I realized that, oh man, I'm going to have to uh, get more organized. So I got uh, some really good clear white manuscript paper, just notebook size, three ring binder stuff. You know, but white. Uh, instead of that brown stuff, and I got a good ink pen, uh-huh. and I actually did them all in ink. Uh, it wasn't like a, you know, a cal- calligraphy pen or anything. It was just a yeah. little ink pen, but I I did them all so they be exact. And Don says, "What the hell are you rewriting all this stuff for?" And I said, "Because someday, Don, you may have a different person wanting to play it, and then you've got it. And all you have to do is hand them this, and they'll know what to do." Right. And he looked at me like I was out of my mind. <laughs> and then in 1975, we were going to do this tour, and we couldn't find a bass player because uh, nobody can play like Mark, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Elliot Ingber was in the band at the time. It was Wing Deal Fingerling in the band. That was his stage name. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, "He said I know this guy who might be able to do it." His name's Buell Neidlinger. And uh, I thought, what a weird name. So <laughs> anyway, I uh, I uh, said, well, let's, let's see if we can get him over here. So he called him, and Buell came right over, and he, he looked like an Eastern mystic. He was wearing all white, madras, Indian kind of, you know, drawstring pants and, you know, his pullover shirt, you know. 
a very, you know, you, you wanted to sit down in lotus position with him and, <laughs> and ask him his wisdom, you know, for your life. Anyway, he pulled out his bass. I mean, it was a, I think it was a Fender jazz bass, if I remember. And I, I, I said, well, uh, I'd like to try this thing called My Human Gets Me Blues. And he said, okay. Now, it was written in treble clef, because I didn't know about bass clef, you know. It was written in treble clef. I explained to him how many times, you know, in fact, I think I wrote it down, pencil, three times this. I'll give you the cue when we go from here to here. Now, you've heard the song. It goes into that weird three, four time carousel, crazy carousel thing in the middle. Yeah. He nailed it the first time. I mean, we hadn't played anything but that, and he nailed it the first time he played it. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so, there. yeah, I tried to get him for the reunion, but, you know, he didn't want to do it. So, so theoretically, these, these, uh, these sort of charts, these still exist somewhere on the planet, right? I mean, in... in... I don't know. I, I, you know, they could be thrown away for all I know. It's amazing. The thing that strikes me is that, you know, it, when a... It... When a composer dies, you know, their their slightest thing will be will be carefully taken up by usually by a university or something and 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 cataloged and transcribed and and put in an air-controlled vault somewhere in Switzerland and you know, and this music is so important, this Trobmas replica and you know every every Beefheart record and and just the the casualness with which some of the the, the original documents are treated is kind of amazing. It would be fascinating to see these things. Kind of criminal. <laughs> well, it is. It is. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. It's a really a shame. And it's a shame that, uh, you know, they didn't approve of me, you know, starting the Magic Band up. They didn't, they've, in fact, I just got a letter. They told me to stop. Wait, they being the, the Don Van Vliet estate? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, the, the representative of the Van Vliet estate. Uh-huh. which is Jan. I mean, who else could it be? It's Jan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so so he's telling me that I do not have the approval of the Van Fleet Estate to continue, and I must stop. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, I was so much an integral part of that happening. Yeah. I, You know, I helped them move when they were stuck in Northern California, and everything went south for them. I helped them to move south, yeah. as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, I was friends with him. I, you know, I bailed him out a few times. You know, I was there when he needed somebody. And it's, it, it, and the thing is, is that everything has been credited. If you look at the inside of this album, it's got all the, it's got all the titles, but the inside has all the publishing credits. I, I looked him up on all the albums, you know, cause he had about four or five publishing companies. I know he had, God's golf ball and yeah. whatever, and you know, on and on. So it it was very disappointing for me to read that. But then again, I thought I must be doing something. As long as I have their disapproval, I know I must be doing the right thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know, a lot of this stuff I've I've uh, especially with the latest band because they read. I've gone back through and 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 really spent hours now sometimes looping one major music to get every note right uh-huh and then listening to it again and again 
I mean, if I drove myself crazy, but I've got a lot of this stuff archived, and I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it yet, but I'll do, you know, yeah. it'll get out there some way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're doing a, an extraordinary service for the music, and it's obviously taking a great deal of, of your time to do this, and you've been doing it for a number of years now. So, uh, so I mean, I think you're doing a very generous act with regards to people who like this music, because it needs to well, be... Well, I, I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's well... That's the best thing I can say. Yeah, yeah. So... So what happened to the original multi-track masters of Trout Mask? Do those exist somewhere? Zappa. Zappa Vault. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where they are now, but the Zappa Vault has them. God knows what they'll do with them. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have a digitized version of that entire album and remix it Yeah. properly. Yeah. No because it, I, it could really be... Plus, you know, you could archive each song... It would be wonderful to have that. It would really be marvelous. I wish somebody, you know, one of these rich fans could buy that. Yeah. Just the original master, have it digitized, and just give me keep the original, but give me a di digitized version of it so that I could mix it the way it properly needs to be mixed. Just take the voice down a hair on Dachau Blues, <laughs> for example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I well... The, the one thing that's really bad is the separation on the drums is horrible because they actually put a wedge monitor in the drum booth. A wedge monitor? Can you explain what that is? In the drum booth. Yeah. A wedge monitor is just, you know, it's just a monitor like if a, a, a singer, he has a, a monitor on stage that's kind of slanted oh, okay. at an angle. Okay. okay. A wedge monitor. They had one of those in the booth. Yeah. Because I couldn't keep headphones on because I, you know, I told you that I had to sort of modify my style of playing because of playing on cardboard so i was like really stiff and jerky when i played and the headphones i swear would fly off my <laughs> 10 feet away they wouldn't even stay on my head <laughs> because i moved so sporadically you know so they had a that's the only way i could hear the band i see okay so there'd be leakage all over the drum parts then. oh yeah, yeah. terrible yeah. leakage yeah. and it'd be it'd be wonderful to be able to redo the drums you know <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so okay so was was anything actually left off the album uh, because uh, you, you mentioned that there were just piles and piles of material being generated at the time you know don was constantly well, writing were there any you piles know? and piles of uh lyrics and poetry and that kind of thing yeah but but not and some of it was used later um i can't give you an example off the top of my head but there was a poem that he read on uh Batching Puller. My eyes are burnt and bleeding and all that's blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. Uh, poo Patch. 81 Poo Patch oh, or yeah. something like that. Okay. I never did get it. Uh, uh -huh. Don't ask me what it's about. <laughs> uh, where the light shows in and the light shows out. <laughs> anyway, a lot I, of stuff used later. Like, for instance, yeah. uh, the Floppy Boot Stomp lyrics were written in that... Uh, in that environment. I see. Okay. Okay. So there were things that, that came out later on. Yeah. Yeah. The, not music, though. There, there was, uh, uh, interestingly enough, in the, the first time we went in the studio and you were asking about transition songs. Yeah. But then he had transition songs from strictly personal 
to trout mass, right? Yeah. Yes, there were. Veterans Day Poppy, Moonlight in Vermont, and oh, da, 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 Sugar and Spikes. Uh-huh. Okay, those were all written after Trout Master was recorded. I mean, after Strictly Personal was recorded. Those three songs were written in the interim between that time and the time we moved to the Trout Mask House before Don got the piano. I see. So Veterans Day Poppy, Moonlight on Vermont, and right. Sugar, uh, and, Sugar and Spikes. Yeah. And Gary, Gary Marker played on those, is that right? He played on two of them. Uh-huh. Sugar and Spikes actually was, was done. And there were two sessions. Our first session with Zappa was in Sunset Sound Studios. And that that was in Hollywood, a very popular studio, a very expensive studio. Mm-hmm. And he took us in one night, and I think we were there about six hours, maybe four to six hours. But Bill Harkerode insists that we did another version of Candy Corn. Huh. Because the plan, which I didn't know about, but the plan was to re-record the entire Strictly Personal album. I don't know why. So wait, a third time? Yeah, because it was recorded originally with Buddha, and a few songs were added, and then it was recorded as Strictly Personal. Right. And then they they were going to do it again, because Don didn't like that psychedelic promo seltzer, <laughs> as he called it. You know, the phase shifting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they were going to do that again, I see. Right, okay. yeah. Okay. So, so that, anyway, yeah. we did that there, and the rest of it was done at... Um, the studio in Glendale. I name it in the book. I, for some reason today, I can't think of the name. Is it Whitney? Whitney Studios yeah. in Glendale. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, that, that that's quite interesting. So, um, so I also was wondering how specific were Don's instructions in terms of how the different fragments of music would would line up together, or in what order they would appear, because. I've often heard it said, uh, like with regards to Trout Mask, that there's no repetition or that the songs are structured in a in a very strange way. But actually, when I listened very closely to Frownland, it, it immediately became obvious that it's full of repetition for one thing. Lots of things are repeated, and not only that, but there are actually there are licks that come back later on in the song. So there's there's a very clear structure mm-hmm. to it in that sense, right? So well, I think I I actually think that the guys, because what I did with Frownland. Um, you know everything else I said okay you play this X amount of times and there's a break here or whatever but on on Frownland I just said have at it uh huh you know after that first you know I just said have at it guys do whatever you know just make it your own and and I think they actually decided to to do that because it's sort of you know, the, 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 when I when I listen to it, it's always to me like a bunch of snakes flying through the air together. <laughs> you know, they're sort of all flying and they're all together, but but uh, they're they're not really they're not really touching each other. They're all independent of each other, but they're all yeah. flying through the air together, and they stop at the same time. And they start at the same time. Right. Yeah. That's what I always see in my head when I hear that song. Yeah, they have a floating relationship to each other. It's not really... They do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So, okay, so I was also wondering, just why did the band not perform during the entire Trout Mask period? Like, Don didn't want to, re- to perform. He never wanted to perform. Really? You know, and yeah, and that's the only way we could have made some, you know, I would have loved to perform just to get out of that house. Yeah. But uh, but for another reason, uh, to make some money. Yeah. Because we, we I mean, basically, Bill Harkerud's mom and Don's mom were supporting the band. They were paying the bills and buying the food and so on. So he didn't want you to play. That's extraordinary. So He, d- he didn't want to perform. No, he hated going out and performing. I see. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because it, it it always struck me as strange, given the enormous amount of work involved in making the record and the the extended period of time. You know, the, I understand you only did one concert with that with the Trout Mask group. Yeah, it was a free free concert. I think it was a uh, a cancer, uh, you know, like a donation kind of thing. Benefit, yeah. a cancer uh, benefit. Yeah. And it was at the uh, same theater, the Aquarius Theater. Yeah. Uh, where hair was, you know, uh, was performed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Frank Zappa was there that night. I can't remember who else. I think Buddy Miles played just before us. And then we went on and did did a set. Mm-hmm. And uh, Don had his cousin in the band. And his cousin didn't know anything about playing an instrument. Uh, he could barely make sound. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But he was he was playing the bass clarinet, you know, on stage with us. And dressed in the same thing he was wearing on the back cover or huh. on the middle middle cover. You're being incredibly patient with my detailed questions, so I'm, just... I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying, Sam. So I just have a couple more to throw at you. Sure. Uh, if I can test you a tiny tiny little bit more. So okay, one thing that you've written that, that really struck me was you said uh, I'm quoting you, I certainly don't consider myself any kind of a great drummer from the standpoint of technique. So I was actually extremely shocked when I read that because your drum parts are unbelievably complex and sophisticated and there's all these polyrhythms going on and you know, you've know you got really your own style happening. So what would it take for you to consider yourself a great drummer? I don't understand. Well, <laughs> what, I, what I think of a great drummer, I think of somebody like Buddy Rich or Dave Weckl or, you know, Steve Gadd. You know, guys like this. I wasn't ever a big Neil Peart fan, although a lot of people think he's high up the ladder. But I was more jazz, jazz oriented. But uh, technique, speed, the ability to improvise over over a riff, or you know, I always wanted to do that, and I never really had the, the opportunity to do it. Later in life, I played in a jazz group for a while. In my late 30s, I played in a jazz group for like uh, mid to late 30s for about seven years. And that's probably the best I was, you know, as a drummer. But I, was, I still felt like I lacked that accuracy that I hear when I listen to these guys. So in that sense, no, I don't consider it's not I'm not trying to be, you know, false modesty or anything. Yeah. I'm just saying these guys have technique and they have chops that you know I'll never have but at the same time I bet if I gave any of them uh, hair pie and told them to play it they'd have just as hard a time learning it as I did yeah you know because yeah. it's it's a very unique it's like what what were you thinking when you wrote this <laughs> you know and I was surprised that uh, I, you know our 
our latest drummer Andy, who is a great guy, a fantastic drummer too. He's, I mean, he's got all that stuff that I was talking about. You know, he's got the control and the speed. And he's incredible foot action. You know, he played metal for a while, I think, and that's where he got the double kick stuff. But he's he's just an incredible drummer. So I I gave him hair pie, and uh, his his remark on in an interview was. And I saw these parts to hair pie, and I went, what the fuck did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was talking to him about the black page one day, and he said, listen, the black page is easy compared to hair pie. <laughs> so I felt pretty good then. You know, I thought, well, that's that's kind of a feather in my cap, and I was happy yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you really have to be able to feel these these complex polyrhythms in you know physically in, in the body, right, in order to be able to play them. Yeah, and yeah. that probably takes a very special type of performer. I had Cliff Martinez, who was the last beef art drummer. Uh, he played on Ice Cream for Crow. He called me, and he talked to me on the phone a few times, but he called me and he says, I just got in the band. And he said, uh, can you give me some lessons? And I charged him some outrageous amount of money, I because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I really didn't want to do it. But I charged him sound outrageous, and he says, okay. I'm going, crap. <laughs> so I had him come. He came up about four times, I think. And uh, I taught him the parts to hair pie. Because I thought, if he can play that, he can probably play anything else. Yeah. And that'll give him, an, that'll influence him playing enough to where the, the stuff that he comes up with for the album will be right. Right. Now, uh, the first thing I noticed, you know, he had memorized all the parts, but when he came up and played them, it was like a freaking robot, you know, I was like, really stiff, you know, and, uh -huh. and I said, Cliff, I grabbed him by the shoulders and shook him. I said, you've got to relax, man. <laughs> you can't play this stuff and be that tight, you know. Huh. So, uh, so he loosened up and I, you know, I think it helped him, but he was scared. I think he was very scared when he joined that band. Yeah, and yeah. Don's idea of writing a drum part was he gave Cliff a tape. He said, "Here's the drum part to this song, man." <laughs> so Cliff takes it home, and it's and it's. Uh, he said, "All I could hear was somebody. It sounded like somebody washing dishes <laughs> and water running, and there was a TV on in the background." <laughs> And and so uh, so uh, he's, Cliff said he said I spent all night with this you know trying he said so I started like listening and I could hear these little rhythms here and there so I I wrote out transcribed out this thing and memorized it you know and I went in and played it the next day and he says Don says man that's exactly what I wanted <laughs> I mean that's the way Don composed the drum part I don't think so. <laughs> but it, the funny here's the funny punchline. Uh, Jeff Tepper, Morris Tepper, was in the band at the time, and he goes, "Yeah, but I don't hear the water thing, Don." <laughs> so Cliff, Cliff says, "I wanted to kill him." <laughs> Up all night listening to running water and washing dishes, and try, oh, trying to make a drum part. He says, "I don't hear the water thing, Don." Amazing. Amazing, yeah. 
No, I mean, if you want to do something really different, you have to have different methods, and that's that's obvious that that he had very different methods. And one of the things that strikes me listening to these records is it's like there's a there's a systematic avoidance of anything obvious, right? It's it's like it's like you, he went through it sort of level by level and said, <laughs> you know, anything that could be normal or ordinary in terms of the way you would approach something like this is just out the window. On, right. on every like, for example, the cardboard on the drums. I mean, so. You know, so how how did it happen that you were you were playing this way in rehearsal, and then it, just in order to mute them, basically, right, in order to not disturb the neighbors, and then it ended up being like that on the record. Well, he <clears throat> he just asked me to do that for one song. It was Hair Pie, uh-huh. the studio version of Hair Pie, which I think was Hair Pie Baked Two, if I remember. I mean, he just asked me to do that on the one song. I see. Okay. He says, "Hey, man!" He stopped and he comes walking out. He comes over to him and he says put the cardboard on the drums, man. <laughs> so, you know, I had the cardboard there for some reason. I don't know why, but hmm. so I put it on the drums for that one one piece. Okay, I see. But uh, that wasn't everything, you know. Yeah. Frank's, Frank says, you know, Drumbo had a real problem because Don made him put cardboard. Everything was covered with cardboard. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I, I do think it has a certain quality because you can really hear the parts in that in that piece. You can really hear the guitar parts and the and the, the bass part very clearly. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. it did serve a kind of a purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no that's that's uh, that's amazing. So I'll I'll just I'll just close with one one final thing. So just just for as an anecdote, I think it might okay. be interesting to tell you. When I when I first actually started studying composition, I, I, I was taking lessons with a guy in Toronto by the name of James Blight, and uh, he was a raging Captain Beefheart fan, and I was 17 or 18 years old or something. I was taking my first real composition lessons. And so I had no idea what I was, what I was getting into, but he, he gave me a, a copy of uh, Lick My Decals Off Baby. And he said, right. there's a track on there called The Clouds Are Full of Wine, Not Whiskey or Rye. I want you to transcribe the original, the opening solo, uh, you know, in music notation. So that was my that was my initiation to to the world of composition. And man, that was that was tough. wasn't easy. I've still got the whole thing memorized. Yeah. Yeah. The hardest thing was figuring out the rhythms and what the stresses and how you can sort of put that into into rhythmic notation. It wasn't it wasn't obvious. So. Yeah. So. I kind of did it in a you know a blocked off manner for my first version because that was the first thing I learned how to play on the sax. Uh huh. Interesting. Actually, we did a, an arrangement of that uh, with a riff going underneath it that goes like. You know, like a jazz riff. So and the keyboardist is playing like fourths. You know. Uh, and 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 I wrote everything out in time, over that, and we're all and it really turned out nice. It really had a nice phrasing. I broke the phrasing up into sections and put it with that. It's almost like a fusion thing. Uh huh. I've got it somewhere, but I haven't. I haven't actually. Uh, I I, rec- I I've got the recording of it, but I haven't actually mixed it yet. Uh huh. Well, that would be really interesting to hear. Yeah. yeah, I think the I think the guys were a little under rehearsed. One of the guys because it sounds a little off. But uh-huh. well, listen, John, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so... I want to keep talking, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be in here longer. <laughs> uh, it's 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 been a it's been a complete delight, and 
Yeah, you've, you've got so many fascinating insights into this music, I'm sure. I mean, you and the other guys who played on the record are, are the only people on the planet who really understand how it was put together and, and everything that went into it. So, I mean, it's incredibly valuable to get your perspective on it. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate it. Oh, that. yeah, you're welcome, yeah. You know, I, I probably... The good thing about it is, is see, you're a handsome man. So if you were ugly, I would have been out of here an hour ago. <laughs> You know, but I mean, you know, at least I didn't have to look at somebody ugly. Well, I know how the music business works, so you know, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> there you go, there you go. You had a lot of work done, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's good, really good to talk to you, and I, I enjoyed the, uh, the, I don't know what it's called, the thing you did on Frownland. Yeah, I guess. yeah. What what is that called? Uh, analysis. Uh, analysis. Analysis. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that was actually my job for a number of years. I taught analysis in France in a, at a conservatory in northern France near, near uh, Lille. And so I, I was just taking all sorts of different types of music from different periods of music history and pulling them apart and showing the students how they were put together. I just Do you speak to, French? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm fluently bilingual. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I, grew up, I actually grew up speaking both French and English. Oh, and, I see. Okay. And I moved to France about 15 years ago, so I've been, I've been living there for a long time. So, oh, you live in France. Oh, right? I live there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I live in Ooh. I live in Strasbourg in eastern France, right, to, right up against the German border. So okay. So the the Frontland thing was just an extension of, uh, of of that sort of idea of just you know doing music analysis and, and applying it to something that isn't normally analyzed. So so anyway, I'm, right. Yeah. So that's that's where that came from. But all um, right. Hey, good talking to you. Good talking to you, John. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you.